Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. this morning. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the moment. If you do want to get in touch, you can call us on 041-983-2000 or you can text or WhatsApp us at 086-1800-658 or you can email the program to michael at lmfm.ie. Now, tomorrow, a major solidarity march is being planned in Dublin. It'll get underway at half past one in Parnell Square and it'll make its way to the Customs House. The march has been organised by a broad coalition of organisations including Lekela, the National Women's Council of Ireland, FOSA, Ireland for All Community Groups, Amnesty International, Black and Irish and tens of others. To find out more about this march and what it's all about, I'm joined on the line right now by Dean Scurry of Ballymun for All. Dean is a community activist in Ballymun. So, Dean, this uh, march tomorrow at half past one, what's it all about? What's the message you're trying to get across? Good morning, Ken. How are you? And hello to everybody in Loud, Maid, Drogheda, Dundalk. I hope you're doing well. You're doing a great uh, job there covering for Michael. Uh, so what's involved is uh, Ireland for All, all coming together and bringing a fight to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to the doll um, because we need change in this country. We need change in an awful lot of things, in housing, in homelessness, in conditions for travellers, in direct provision, Um there's an awful lot of stuff that we need to do, that we need to get right. And I think that that's what Ireland for All is, is, is a, a calling together of all areas of Ireland. As you listed there, we have, you know, hundreds of groups uh, in support from Amnesty International to La Cayla, uh, political parties we had out yesterday. Outside the Dáil today, we have those people affected by direct provision uh, in a press conference. So... That's what we're looking for, and we're inviting everybody down half past one tomorrow, Parnell Square. Come down and listen to Bernadette Devlin, Peter McFerry, Christy Moore, Maverick Sabre, all standing in solidarity uh, together 
you know, and, and encouraging uh, diversity and not division in this lovely land of, of Cade Mealafolge. Okay, well, what will you be saying tomorrow that we'll say left-wing and opposition politicians don't say in the Dáil and on radio programmes like this every other day? Well, what I'll be encouraging is ordinary citizens of Ireland to come together, to come out and stand strong together, shoulder to shoulder, and encouraging people to use their democracy, use their vote, use their voice and, and the power of, of protest to, uh, to lobby, um, you know, together as one voice, to lobby government, to lobby Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael for real change, real action, real leadership uh, and real investment in our country uh, for all people and not just for, you know, certain uh, sections of people, for big tech companies and, and so on. Okay, well, that sounds like, you know, what you might hear at a Sinn Féin or a Labour Party or a Desh. I mean, let's go through the specifics. What areas in particular would you like to see change in? Well, I think what we need to do is end homelessness. There's, a, there's a, an idea. So I'm the guy who took Apollo House, and one of the reasons I took it because there was a billion euro investment in Ballymun, but Ballymunners at the time couldn't buy uh, properties there, and this caused 20% of all the homeless people in Dublin are from Ballymun. Uh, so I think housing and homelessness uh, can be fixed, can be invested in. And when I done the maths at the time, I reckon for 50 million quid, you could end street sleeping or rough sleeping in Dublin forever. So there's an investment we can make in, in our country. Okay, well, the likes we of Peter McVerry... We need uh, to do that across the board, you know, with travellers in direct provision, uh, in, in healthcare and so on. We don't have a lack of money in this country. We probably just have a lack of will. Okay, well, the likes of Peter McVerry and uh, Paul Murphy of People Before Profit and Richard Boyd Barrett, they're saying these things day in, day out in the Dáil and on radio and TV programmes and in the newspapers and so on. Um, So the government is obviously getting the message, albeit that things tend to move rather slowly. But what other areas would you like to see change in? Well, I think... I don't know necessarily if they're getting the message strong enough. And I think that that's what this is for. That's what Ireland for all is for, is the message we can all get behind. I think we need, we know we need change. On the last general election, uh, we almost got that change. We've had a hundred years of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in this country. And what I'm urging Ireland to do is register to vote, get out and vote, um, and, 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 you know, vote for the, for the type of country that we want. I don't think this is the type of country that we want where we have, uh, you know, 12,000, at least 12,000 homeless people, where we have a defunct healthcare system, where we have a direct provision system that just doesn't work. And, um, you know, blaming refugees or those seeking asylum or those, uh, you know, fleeing uh, war on immigration and direct provision is like blaming homeless people on homelessness. It's like blaming travellers on the conditions in halting sites. It's a ridiculous argument, and I think the fight has only to be brought to the doll, to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. That's where the power, the resources, the legislation, the policy all lies. Yeah, as I say, I'm not too sure exactly what you want because, I mean, there are other people calling what you're calling for day in, day out since time began. But if we deal, for example, with the recent, we'll say, 
Recent issues in relation to immigration and so on, there's been a growing number of groups, for example, I'm not so sure they're anti-immigrant, but they're definitely critical of the way, for example, the government is handling the whole immigration situation and the fact that something like 72,000 Ukrainian refugees have come in here. And I suppose in an ideal world, it would be great to take them all. But the reality is we don't have the accommodation. What do you say, for example, to groups who are critical of the numbers, but not so much immigration per se? I don't necessarily think we don't have the accommodation. I just think we don't have the will to do it. I think we see, and like during COVID, uh, I walked um, in a hotel that was uh, commissioned um, for homeless people. And in Dublin, uh, like literally overnight, the street, um, the homeless situation was resolved because uh, we made executive decisions. So people in the HSE made executive decisions to go, no, we want to take that building there. We want to put homeless people in there. And, and we've done that across the sea. So I don't think the resources, the lack of uh, accommodation is the issue, really. Um, and like there's people fleeing horrendous conditions. I would not like to be fleeing the conditions that any of these people are from. And they're, they're not deciding where they go or how they go, in, you know, generally. Um, so I think... You know, we have, and we've shown that we have the resources there, the accommodation there. We've got, you know, by conservative estimations, we've got 60,000 empty properties in this country. Okay, but the government can't be blamed for everything. For example, a call has been made more than once for people with empty and vacant properties to make them available. And a lot of people put their hands up and says, yes, you can have my property at number 24. But when uh, the various local authorities uh, tried to gain access to these properties, the owners backed off. So it's not always the fault of the government. Some members of the public uh, may mean well, but the reality is a lot of these properties aren't being delivered. So the point I'm making to you is you're blaming the government but in real terms, the government isn't exactly to blame. Uh, yeah, I beg to differ on that. I don't think, you know, what we're seeing in Ireland has happened in the last two or three years. This has been a long time coming. There's been a failure to invest in traveller accommodation. There's been a failure to resolve direct provision. There's been a failure to uh, resolve healthcare issues, housing issues, homelessness issues, 10, 15, 20 years. This isn't overnight. Uh, and I think the fix on it isn't overnight, but what we're calling on people is to come in solidarity as one voice, as Ireland for all, um, and we can plan and plot and lobby and, uh, you know what I mean, think and strategize together uh, as a people, as a country, uh, you know, and it's, it's a point where people can, uh, yeah, come together and, and stand in, in all the diversity that we have in this country. And, you know, and just in terms of immigration, the Irish invented immigration, you know, if we're going to be really honest. There's 95 million of those taking advantage of immigration all over the world. And? And? And what's the point you're making in, in relation to immigration? I mean, Irish people are probably more conscious of immigration and emigration than probably any other nationality. I think there's actually about 70 million around the world who are of Irish heritage. But the point I'm saying is, I, I just get the impression from this that this is simply uh, a drive to change the government and get a left-wing government in. Isn't that the case? I don't think that that's the case, but I think we we had had 100 years of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, and there are all as voted by the people, by the way. Uh, 
Absolutely, absolutely as voted by the people and people have a right to vote, they have a right to protest, they have a right to come out tomorrow and stand in solidarity, uh, you know, in diversity, uh, you know, and, and, and show, uh, you know, show courage, especially in the face of kind of anti, uh, anti-immigrants anti in, in terms of racism, in terms of, you know, a potential rise in fascism in this country, to stand together and not be afraid. Sure, yeah. Well, as you know, there's been a lot of tension in recent months over the fact that uh, immigrants have moved into certain parts of the country. The locals have not been informed. There's growing anger about the way the government is handling this. But uh, Ireland, uh, and particularly the government, has said that we have a sort of a a legal obligation to let uh, people fleeing war into the country because Ireland has signed up to a number of international obligations. But there's another body of opinion that says that the influx of immigrants is causing pressures on the way the state is being run and this is perhaps contributing to the unhappiness that you feel isn't that the case look we do have a legal obligation and you know it's the, the responsibility and, and the decisions do lie um, at the, the feet of the government and we have to get it right just like we have to get direct provision right you know what i mean we've messed up on direct provision we need to we need to sort it we need to put the resources into it we need to, uh, you know, enforce the legislation that is there, you know what I mean, and, and, and do it correctly. So it runs smoothly. If it ran smoothly, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, if, if housing ran smoothly, we wouldn't have 12,000 homeless people. So that's not, as I said, housing and homelessness isn't the, the, the fault of people in precarious housing situations sleeping on sofas, just as much as traveller conditions isn't the fault of, uh, of travellers. And I remember my dad was homeless about five years ago, and uh, he was staying in a hostel and it was quite, you know, quite a dodgy hostel that he was staying in. And I hadn't been in touch with him for, for a couple of days and, and I managed to, he managed to get through to me on a pay phone and he was petrified and terrified and all his, his documents, his passport and all that kind of stuff had, had, been, um, had been stolen and he didn't know what to do. And I'm seeing that in people. Like I went to uh, some of the accommodation in Ballymoon where they're housing uh, some uh, asylum seekers and those seeking refuge. And there was people terrified there. And, you know, all I could do as a community worker, as an activist, as an Irish person, was go in there and, and put my hands out and hold their hands and, uh, you know, show some community, show some solidarity, show a little bit of uh, humanity. And, and that's kind of what we're offering. That's, you know, that's what we have. We don't have the power. We don't have the budgets. We can't overnight change the legislation or force the government to make decisions. They have that power. The power is always with those guys. And that's what we're encouraging people to do, is to realise that and not be marching outside uh, the accommodation of those people who are arriving into our country. That we welcome those people, that we use that mantra that we've you know, shared around the world. Cave me a yeah, sure. But look, uh, what I'm saying to you is uh, you, you're basically marching to basically send a message to the government that you appear to be saying that you don't like the way this country is going. But the very people who will show up at that march tomorrow, they will have their say at the next general election. And if the last general election and previous general elections are anything to go by, the bottom line is that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael still command the most support in this country combined. So not everybody is thinking the same way as you. Do you accept that? No, I think you're suggesting that I'm looking for a left government. What I'm looking for people to do is to exercise their right to protest, to exercise their right to vote, to lobby their government en masse, uh, to resolve not just uh, you know the current uh, 
um, issue about uh, migration or uh, immigration, but to have a look at, at it all. It's the conditions that, uh, you know, the underlying conditions of health care, the underlying conditions of homelessness that allow kind of the, the, the rise of, you know, fascism, um, anti-immigrant uh, racist sentiments. Yeah, but there is concern amongst a lot of people. I don't think people are anti-immigrant. They're perhaps concerned about the numbers that lots of people have come into the country. uh, And this is creating a scenario whereby uh, the price of housing, for example, is going up. A lot of people have been squeezed out of the housing market. And there's also um, growing anger over the fact, and I'm only reflecting what is reality. This is not my personal opinion. A lot of people see the state going over, uh, going out of its way, rather, to house immigrants immigrants at a time when 11,000 people are homeless and a lot of people feel that's wrong and unfair. What would you say to that? Well, what I say to that is the people that we've invited into this country that have driven up house prices are big tech companies and these massive, massive, massive call centres that's draining uh, probably a quarter of our electricity. But what's that got to do with the, the rise in the cost of housing? I, I, okay. So let's say, for example, you live down on uh, Pier Street where the headquarters of Facebook and Google are. What do you think that those big companies there that attract all companies from all over Europe to that area, what do you think that that's doing to the price of houses in that area? It's driving them up. Uh, yeah, no, but it's not the companies. It's a growth in population and demand is greater than supply. But look, uh, we're running out of time on this. Uh, you're meeting tomorrow at Parnell Square at half past one. If there's people in the Louth Meath area that intend going along, what advice would you have for them? Uh, I would say come down early, bring a packed lunch, dress warm, prepare to be there until about four o'clock, um, carpool down. Uh, there are buses leaving, uh, you know, Cork, Limerick, Galway, Belfast, Drogheda, Dundalk coming down. Uh, we expect uh, a big uh, family-friendly crowd. Come down and have fun, sing your heart out and listen to some inspirational speakers like Bernadette uh, Devlin and Peter McFerry. OK, well, we wish you well with that. That's uh, happening tomorrow then in Dublin. That march gets underway at half past one from Parnell Square to the Custom House Quay. That's uh, Dean Scurry of Ballymun for All, who is one of the groups taking part in the Ireland for All Solidarity March tomorrow. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the main political parties are discussing a package of measures to help families, businesses and indeed the most vulnerable in our society at present. These measures are expected to be finalised in the coming days with perhaps an announcement next Tuesday. One of the contentious issues is the ending of the electricity credit. There's also the issue over the fact that the moratorium on evictions is likely to come to an end at the end of March and for people already struggling, uh, the months ahead don't look very inviting at all. Well, to discuss this, I'm joined on the line right now by Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Uh, Gavin, where are we at in terms of, uh, if you like, a new package of measures? Still very much a work in progress, Ken. Good morning to you and your listeners. Um, one thing which a couple of government sources said to me yesterday, and it might be interesting to, to relay this to your listeners, is that in the last couple of years, particularly when it came to a lot of um, decisions around the handling of the pandemic and whether restrictions would come in or out, we became very used to this idea that a cabinet subcommittee would meet one evening 
that they would basically make the decisions that the cabinet would only meet the following day to rubber stamp it all and that then the whole thing would be done and dusted. And there was a kind of an expectation maybe earlier in the week that when this, this cabinet subcommittee on economic matters was to meet last night that they would kind of really do all the donkey work and then it would just be left up to, to the rest of ministers just to, to take a box and, and rubber stamp whatever was left. Um, what I was told about going into last night, and it certainly seems to be the case coming out of it, is that that is not the case this time. That although, yes, it was very good to have six or seven ministers around the table last night to discuss the general bones of what might be possible or what are the priorities that need to be achieved, that it's still very much a work in progress, that there'll be ongoing contact between, for example, uh, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue over the course of the weekend between the three uh, coalition party leaders, Tisha Connerstown, Eamon Ryan, uh, and then between individual ministers uh, going across the weekend, that effectively this is, although the government is going out of its way to say that it's not a budget or a mini-budget, a lot of the preparation seems to have a lot of the same tenor as a budget, where it's not that everything is settled down weeks in advance, that there's still going to be a lot of bilateral meeting and and refinement of these plans uh, going into the weekend and right up until Tuesday morning. So, in truth, um, we're still only kind of dealing with a lot of speculation or a lot of pre-briefed agendas as to what each party wants to get out of these talks. But in truth, it's going to be well into the weekend before we know whether there's any shape coming to all of this at all. And one thing worth bearing in mind, by the way, because I may forget to say it a little bit later, is that um, it, what is made slightly complicated in trying to arrange all this deal is that Micheál Martin is now out of the country. Uh, he's gone to Munich this morning for a three-day meeting of uh, global leaders and defence ministers in Munich Security Conference that people may be familiar with that takes place in Bavaria around this time every year. And when that finishes up on, on Sunday evening, he's going straight to Brussels because there's a meeting of EU foreign ministers on Monday. So it's not going to be Monday night before he's back in the country. And obviously, although while he remains in contact with the rest of government, uh, it will make it slightly difficult to to get the Fianna Fáil sign-off or sign of approval on anything that's going on because the party leader is going to be pretty tied up for the next three or four days. Sure. Is there a tension emerging between the Greens on one side and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil on the other because there has been talk of the electricity credit being extended for an additional month and Catherine Martin has indicated in the last few days, she being uh, the Green Minister for Communications and Arts and uh, a load of other portfolios, <laughs> yeah. uh, she, she has indicated that she would prefer if this €200 Euro credit was extended or put on hold, if you like, until next winter when if you like uh, the problems we've experienced in the last three or four months will come back round again. Yeah, yeah, and there's a good logic to that by the way. I think even Catherine Martin would probably uh, struggle to remember all of the various briefs she has, tourism, media, girl talk, sport and a whole load of other things, greyhounds and what have you. Um, but yes, I mean there is, and you're, you're totally right, there is a tension between the green side of the house and the other majority parties because um, one of the concerns for example is that yes, the, the, um, the, the, the two larger parties are keen to consider an electricity credit because they know that the bills haven't come down. And although there has been some talk in the last couple of days of wholesale electricity prices coming down, the providers say that they've always got certain prices hedged in and that it would take a couple of months for that to be passed on to consumers. So bills aren't likely to be, or at least headline rates, aren't likely to be any cheaper uh, come April or May. And therefore, they would say, well, if people are still struggling with energy bills, why not give them another 200, million, or 200 credits each at the time if we have the money to do so? The Green Party would say, however, that giving a credit to pretty much every one of two million households, that costs the state 400 million euro as a kind of a subsidy towards their energy bills. And they would say, well, if you're getting towards uh, the, you know, the summer months, if you're talking about applying a, a credit 
to a bill that might come in May or potentially in June, then you're going to be talking about electricity usage that's incurred in April or May. And most people, of course, wouldn't be using as much electricity. The clocks have gone forward. Hopefully the weather is a little bit milder uh, and people won't be incurring as much. So they would say, well, why spend 400 million euro subsidising bills when they're that little bit lower or people aren't, you know, don't, don't feel as compelled to have the heating on for the hours that they do? Why not hang on to the money? until the autumn, and then if you, you put the credit on again in November or December, people would really feel like they're getting the benefit of it. And there's a similar tension when it comes to um, the, the excise duty on petrol and diesel. People may remember that uh, around March of last year, there was a temporary cut, or at least what was billed as a temporary cut, on the excise that the pumps took 20 cent per litre off unleaded and 15, 15 cent per litre off diesel. That is also due to expire at the end of February. And again, you have the Greens saying, well, you know, that costs a lot of money and we're, we're really uneasy about this ongoing subsidy of fossil fuels. That they, they basically don't believe that it's financially sustainable to keep supporting something which is environmentally unsustainable. But the other two larger parties will say, well, we're going to find it very difficult to, to think about adding 15 cent or at least some of 15 cent back onto the price of the pumps when diesel is still at around 170 per litre as it is. That if you, if you undid the cut you basically be sending the price of fuels back to the price that they were last year, which necessitated the government to put the cut in the first place. So uh, the, across the, the House, there is a lot of, of uh, people doing back-of-the-envelope sums, trying to figure out, well, how much money can you gain by by re- uh, ending certain measures or by whittling them down? And does that release money then that you can hang on to until the October budget? Or does it at least uh, free up some cash that you can use in some other areas for a more immediate package? Gavin, where do we stand in relation to the ending of the moratorium on uh, evictions, uh, whereby uh, people who are renting up until the end of March can't be evicted, as is currently the case? Mm. But that moratorium effectively comes to an end at uh, the end of March. Is there any likelihood that's going to be extended or are there legal issues uh, emerging if the government decides to go beyond March? Uh, the funny thing is that the answer to both of your your uh, either or answer is yes. There, that is something that's been looked at. Now, by the way, as far as I'm aware, I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually being looked at in the context of this cost of living package that that is being come up with um, next week. But it certainly is something which is being examined. Um, you have to remember that the government has always been reluctant, and successive governments have been reluctant to introduce the sort of moratorium that we currently have because they would say, well, we're kind of playing fast and loose with the Constitution. The Constitution grants property rights and that means that landlords need to have this certain ability to to do with their property what they like, subject to certain rules. And and they would say that, therefore, you're kind of acting fast and loose or you could be on legal sensitive ground if by implementing this moratorium. But the way in which they justified it going into the winter months was that well, because of a, a whole variety of other challenges, including not least the, the tens of thousands of people coming from Ukraine who are now in state accommodation and the increased numbers of asylum seekers and those in direct provision as well, um, that the state was basically running out of emergency accommodation. So the state was able to legally justify the moratorium on evictions by saying, well, the state is unable to provide the emergency safety net here by, by providing beds for people who cannot fend for themselves. And that that remains the case. I mean, that that is still the case. There was always this this intention that when that uh, eviction or the moratorium was put in place for five months, the government would be able to go away and do something and release further accommodation, so that when the ban was lifted again in April, the government would be able to provide the safety net. But that that patently isn't able to happen. So on one side, you have the government saying, well, you know, we, there's an acknowledgement that there will be five months or so of uh, eviction notices basically bottled up, ready to be activated from um, early April onwards. So you'll have huge loose of people 
um, who are leaving rental accommodation who need somewhere else to go and who may struggle to get it because of course then there's going to be the, the laws of supply and demand of, of increased supply yeah. for a finite number of properties um, uh, but on the other hand the government's still unable to provide the backup so it's going to be a very difficult thing to square uh, and it is something which is being actively looked at despite all the legal qualms but as far as I'm aware and this, this may change over the weekend it's not being looked at specifically as a cost of living matter it's something which is going to take a little bit more uh, deft consideration a little few weeks from now Sure, just one last question Gavin and very briefly uh, in all likelihood uh, are we expecting a rise in the cost of petrol and diesel and home heating oil is VAT in the hospitality sector expected to rise up to whatever it is 13.5% from 9% and is there a likelihood that there will be increases in welfare payments? Uh, some increases in welfare payments, yes. I suspect that we, what we might have is something akin to a Christmas bonus where a lot of payments will be doubled on a one-off basis, including, for example, child benefits because the government is mindful that those with children are having a particularly tough time with the, the extra volume of costs that they face. So you might have a one-off doubling of those similar to what we had in the autumn. Um, VAT on hospitality, I suspect, will go up. Uh, I mean, there is obviously a very concerted rearguard action within the government parties from backbenchers who want to keep it down because they know that the hospitality business is really struggling. But I think from the government's perspective, they're going to find it very difficult to afford all those other one-off welfare measures if they don't try and bring in some new revenue from somewhere else. So I suspect VAT will have to go back up because that in itself will raise right. 400 billion euro. Uh, and as regards the uh, petrol and diesel, I suspect there will be some continuation of the excise cuts, but not, not to the full extent. So you may have some rollover, but not to the full extent and the prices at the pumps will be going up in the first couple of days of March. Okay, Gavin, we're going to have to leave it there. The clock has beaten us again. That's uh, Gavin Riley there, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with the Meath Chronicle. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, in the first six months of 2022, the ESB had revenues of 3.7 billion euro and this marked a 1.5 billion euro increase on the same period the previous year. We know that the gas companies are raking in the cash as indeed are the oil companies and this at a time when many families are struggling. The Social Democrats have called on the government to deliver its promise to introduce a windfall tax on energy firms and the party's energy spokesperson Jennifer Whitmore has tabled a private member's motion in the Dáil which also proposes targeted energy price caps to tackling spiralling costs and Jennifer joins me on the line right now. Uh, This windfall tax, Jennifer, what sort of figures do you have in mind in terms terms of, uh, if you like, a penalty on the energy companies. Good morning, Ken. Yeah, yeah. so as you, as you described, I think, you know, people are getting really, really frustrated and angry about the fact that their energy bills are continuing to go up uh, every time a bill comes through through the door to them. And at the same time, we see energy companies' profits absolutely skyrocketing. So as you said, the ESB, uh, you know, they're, they're now, I think, up to around 300 million. Um, we see the, the likes of Board Gosh, who's uh, profits have rose uh, 74% in the first six months of last year. Car of gas field has trebled in the first six months of 2022. It's like 560 million. Um, and then when you look at things like wind farms, you know their uh, their generate their generators are running at something like six times ahead of the expectations. So across the entire energy spectrum in Ireland, we're seeing these companies making incredible profits at the same time as telling people we need to put these prices up and that you're going to have to pay and businesses are going to have to pay for it. So the, in relation to the windfall taxes, so Social Democrats uh, this week called 
for the government to implement a windfall tax to make sure that those companies, that those obscene profits are curbed and stopped. Now, the government has agreed to that. So last year they, they agreed to it. They worked with the EU on a proposal to cut those uh, those profits and excesses. Our difficulty is that despite Minister Ryan talking about it in August and again in September when it was coming up to the budget, um, they still haven't actually done it. So what we were saying to them this week is implement them now. You know, stop uh, stop the delays. This needs to be put in place now because people are struggling now. Um, and so the, the, the government has two proposals when it comes to the windfall tax. One is that, say, for the likes of Carib, um, that they will be taxed on their, their uh, profits. Um, and then when it comes to the likes of the wind, uh, wind farms, wind, the electricity generators, um, they will be charged, they will only be able to charge a certain amount of money. But that will only come into play between uh, December of last year and June of this year. So it's a very limited time frame okay, but they're actually going to be curbed sure. for. And again, we have issues with this. So essentially, we want the government to implement what they promised. We hear a lot of promises from government. We, we don't sure, see much delivery. I have so that's to, what we want to see. Yeah, but I have to put the point to you. The ESB is a semi-state organisation. Any revenues the ESB generate is effectively for reinvestment for the benefit of the state. Isn't it like, you know, one government department penalising another for being successful? So what I would say to you is that uh, the ESB is only one component of it. So this would, this would apply to the likes of the uh, wind generators as well, the electricity generators, the, the wind farms. But when it comes to the ESB, you're right, the dividends do go back into the government. However, what that means is that the ESB are increasing their prices, uh, putting huge pressure on businesses and homes, and just the stress of that. Um, and that could all be avoided if they didn't charge in excess of what they should be charging. OK, but isn't, so, there, a, isn't there a regulator who's supposed to keep an eye on the likes of the ESB? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm on the climate committee, Ken, um, and we have the CRU in with us uh, a, a lot uh, during during the last couple of years. The CRU do not have uh, enough teeth; they actually don't uh, deal with price regulation in Ireland um, at all. So, you know, unfortunately, our regulator, and I think considering um, the crisis that we're in, I, we're certainly seeing that the CRU does not have the the, the powers, the teeth that it because should have the politicians, in order to regulate poli- this market properly. Yeah, because the politicians haven't given given the powers to the CRU, isn't it up to you people who are elected by the people to give these people the powers to put manners on these type of companies? It, it, absolutely, it is up to the government. It absolutely is. And I think what we're seeing is, is that uh, not just this government, but successive governments have not um, put the focus on ensuring that the regulation is there. They, they tend to take a very hands-off approach with uh, our corporations and our industries. Um, and I think what happens in those instances is that is actually to the detriment of our communities. And you can particularly see it when it comes to the energy crisis. So, yes, we do need more regulation. That is something that government and government parties need to implement because that is within their remit. Well, what about the argument that uh, the likes of Shell and BP, who are big oil producers, that uh, when the price of oil goes up, the price goes up at the pump practically overnight. But when the price comes down, it seems to take for weeks and months for the prices to come down. Can anything be done to make sure that the, uh, the, the drop in price when oil becomes more plentiful on the marketplace uh, should come down quicker? Yeah, and, and this is another thing that we've, we've seen. And it isn't just in relation to, say, the likes of the big players. I mean, we've seen Electric Ireland um, this week said that it could potentially take 18 to 24 months before 
uh, consumers start seeing, you know, their 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 uh, their electricity prices coming down, um, and that is despite the, the the fact that wholesale gas prices are already decreased. Um, and again, this comes back to government not, you know, being willing to regulate these companies more. They they do take a really really hands off approach when it comes to these companies. And as you say, you know, pretty much immediately uh, when when the wholesale gas price started going up because of the the war in Ukraine. Uh, people's bills and businesses' bills went up uh, pretty much immediately. And now they're saying, well, actually, we won't be dropping those prices because we forward planned and, you know, the way they purchase uh, these contracts. But that's not acceptable. It really isn't acceptable. You know, I'm talking to people who... um, I I spoke to a man who actually ended up in hospital because he's diabetic and he couldn't afford to to either feed himself or or, uh, heat his home. And so that's the consequences of this lack of regulation uh, on these... these, uh, uh, these companies. I want to put one final question to you before I let you go. Isn't the problem that if you go after the likes of the ESB or the likes of Shell or the likes of BP and you take a big chunk of tax off them, they will basically pass that penalty on to the consumer. So in other words, in order to recoup the money that's going to the exchequer, they'll simply put the prices up again to take in the same amount of revenue. So I, I suppose in relation to that, I don't think that that's the case because the, 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 the profits that they're making at the moment, they could never have imagined these profits in their wildest dreams. You know, these are completely extraordinary profits that they had never anticipated. They would have never, you know, planned in, 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 in their business plans, anything like that. So I, I don't think so. I think even they would recognise that, that they have been incredibly, uh, um, you know, I suppose, lucky in inverted commas from, from what's happened recently. I, I made the point in the doll this week uh, with the minister in our debate that that companies will do what companies do, right? Companies will seek to maximise their profits for their shareholders and that's what they're legally obliged to do. It is government's responsibility to regulate these companies and what we're seeing here is that the government is failing to regulate for the benefit and the protection of uh, vulnerable people, for our communities and for businesses, particularly our small businesses that are, you know, they're going under every single day Um, and government is failing to take their responsibility to regulate these businesses on properly and, and that's really why we're having the difficulties we're having. Okay, so it's all about giving the regulator more powers. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. That's Jennifer Whitmore there, who is the Social Democrat spokesperson on energy. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let me read you this line from uh, John Fogarty, writing in the Irish Examiner uh, back in November of 2022. It said, In county executives across the country, last month's news that Loud GAA had secured... 14.8 million euro funding for its new stadium via the Immigrant Investor Programme was met with, quote, why the hell didn't we think of that? And I suppose that's a very good way of introducing our next item because in fairness to the Louth County Board, they took full advantage of a scheme that was there and by all accounts it's going to help uh, bring about what's going to be a very modern and uh, impressive facility for Louth GAA in the county. Peter Fitzpatrick is a former manager of the Louth team. He's chairman of the Louth County Board and he just also happens to be an independent team. Uh, First of all, uh, Peter, let me ask you this. Um, The 14.8 million euro that you're getting under this immigrant investor programme, if this investor programme wasn't in place, do you think the proposed stadium might not happen? First of all, uh, 
Ken, thanks for having me on your program this morning. Uh, we've been we uh, back in 2018. We set up a committee in Loud, and we went looking for first of all for grants. And in fairness to the Loud County Council, we got an 11 acre site in the Inner Relief Road, and we also purchased an extra three acres. So at the moment, we have uh, a 14 acre site. Then in 2020, we got plan of permission, and we got the president of GA, John Holmes, to come down and uh, open open the, uh, the the pitch. Now, for the last three years, we've been working very closely with the government. Uh, there was supposed to be a large infrastructural support grant coming out in 2019, 2020, 2021, and now it's 2022, and there's still no sign of it. Uh, I will be honest, Ken, is, uh, we always had a plan B. Uh, two years ago, we uh, uh, the committee, we went away and we, 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 we appointed an agent and we looked into the IIP programme. Now, in, no matter what anybody says about the IIP programme, it has been a fantastic programme. It came in in 2012. It has helped this, uh, the country uh, raise 1.2 billion. And if you look all around the country, whether it's health, education, art, culture, or sport, or even looking at businesses around that there, or even look at if you look at, for example, the Michael Mc, uh, McFerry Trust there at the moment is he, he's, he's got four million of, of, to help housing and to help homelessness. You've got all the colleges and everything else. The amount of money has been given by the IIP has been unreal. No, and uh, we were lucky enough that we, we, we investigated back two years ago. Uh, sport has been including us. And in fairness, we went to Michal Martin, uh, the teacher at the time. We also went to Jack Chambers, the Minister for Sport. We went to the county manager, Joe Martin, in the Lowell County Council. And then we also went to the DTIT and we got their support. So over the last two years, we've had an awful, an awful, an awful walk into this year. And uh, back there in, in, in November, we've been awarded $14.8 million. The question you asked me, if we hadn't got the $14.8 million, would we be able to complete the grant? I don't think so. I think it, it, it's coming at a good time. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the large infrastructure grant might come down the road. I don't know. But it's been a blessing in the sky. And all the Nigerian people are just delighted that we've been waiting over 60 years to get our own stadium. And now, hopefully in the next 18 months, well, the goal is September 2024, that we will be holding our first games in our new stadium in the, in the relief road in the dock. Well, no, the sk- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team, as I understand it, required applicants to invest a minimum of €1 million Euro for a minimum of three years, and the applicants had to be of high net worth with a personal wealth of at least €2 million, Euro, and in return they got Irish residents. So, in theory, a great idea, and well done to you for taking full advantage of this, but the scheme is now being closed down. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Personally, I think it's a very, very bad idea, because the situation was, if, if we hadn't got the 1.2 million, as you know yourself, uh, like, like the crash, uh, the house prices collapsed, 
the trike was in the country. Uh, there, was, there was a 64 million uh, punch in the economy by the banks and everything else. This country was in a serious, serious bad way at the moment. And if you look at all the good work that the IIP done, and, and you know, and Minister Howard has his reasons, but he also made a statement there yesterday that uh, he thought the IIP was a good idea. It was, uh, I, I was, I was, I was, like, the Department of Justice looked after absolutely everything. And in fairness, that like I think around about fourteen hundred uh, investors have taken taken up the residency in the last ten or ten or eleven years. But he, there, there was an evaluation committee set up, which is made up of senior civil servants and public civil servants and various. Like there was no loopholes in it whatsoever. I thought it was a very very good idea. And if you look at, look for example, uh, the good news we had uh, a TikTok are going to create another thousand jobs in in, in Ireland. So if you're going to turn around and tell these uh, people in TikTok that we don't want to tell them jobs at the moment, I personally can't understand the reason behind why why he closed the IOP investment. Because it's been a win-win-win for everybody. It's been a win-win for us here in County Loud. It's been a win-win for all the homeless people and the people who got all this money from the IOP. And if that money hadn't come into the country over the last 10 or 11 years, where would the money coming from? Well, um, I suppose the question has to be asked, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe you do, is there any evidence to indicate that perhaps uh, the scheme was being abused and the government felt it was time to close it down? I don't know. Do you, do you know? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, for the last maybe the last three or four months since it was announced that they got the £14.8 million, I, I, the amount of phone calls I got from every quarter of the country uh, whether it be, uh, maybe uh, hospitals, maybe schools, maybe uh, sports and everything else, they're all like they're crying and crying. They, they need money, and there's nothing like there to help them along. And like this money, IIP, it's all for community, it's for inward investment and everything else. And I just want to know, is, do the government have a plan to help all these clubs? Because at the moment, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any money out there for, for, the, for the communities to help them invest. So I, 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 I think if, if you're going to do away with the scheme, I think it's very important that the government replace the scheme. And as far as I'm concerned, is the, the, and as I said earlier on, uh, Ken, is like Michal Mann was the Taoiseach, the Minister for Sport, the Loud County Council, the DKT, they all gave us a letter of support. Like, it took us two years to fill this application in. We had to go through loops after loops after loops. Every time we thought we had it, they were looking for more info, more information. And in fairness, they did the right job. It meant that these people that's going to invest in, in, in the Loud GA Stadium, they're going to be all vetted to the highest of standards. And if, if everything has been done right through the Department of Justice, I can't see any reason why they stopped it. And we've been very lucky at the moment. Is, uh, the money, we, we've got 37 uh, uh, applications. The 37 applications are going through the Department of Justice at the moment. Uh, we, 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 we've got some appointed there in, in, in January. There's more being appointed in June. And sorry, March, then June, and then the last, the last one will be done in September. Well, just on that very point, uh, Peter, just let me ask you this: You got fourteen point eight million euro from thirty-seven investors. Where exactly were all those investors from? Well, it, 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 most of the investors we got would, would actually come from China. The, the, the majority, the majority of investors that on the investment program are from China, from China. So the Chinese people coming into the country, and the only thing, the only thing can they dig? They're guaranteed. Is they're guaranteed for three years that the kids can attend college in, in Ireland. And, uh, and there is a possibility that they can extend it for another two years. Now, there, there, there's, there's four different types of programs, can I tell you, there's an enterprise investment program, there's an investment program, there's a real estate investment program, and the one we've done was, was called an endorsement program, which, 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 which helps us there. And basically what they do is, once, once you've got more than five applicants, and that's given you over 400,000, so basically, we, we, we got 30, 37 
benefactors that want to invest 400,000 into the live GA stadium. And uh, oh, as I said, yeah, people don't want to be about passports and golden passports. It's absolutely nothing to do with passports. It gives them an opportunity to take the family over to Ireland for three years and extend it for two years. And the only thing to get out of it is to get an education for the children and to have to pay it like everybody else. Is it temporary residence, basically, they get? That's it, yeah, yeah. Well, um, it seems, uh, I'm sure, that the Mead County Board and uh, the Kildare County Board and various county boards around the country that are trying to upgrade their stadiums and their grounds and so on are are looking on in awe and envy at you and the Loud County Board that you took full advantage of this. And hopefully uh, this this stadium will make a huge difference when it's built and uh, completed. Um, Are you convinced that the government has come up with an alternative to this scheme so that if the likes of the Mead County Board require adequate funds to build their proposed new stadium, that the money is there, or are they going to have to go down the traditional route of coming up with matching funds to apply to the National Lottery and government grants and council grants and so on? Well, as, as I said earlier on, Ken, is, uh, when, uh, when Minister Harris announced the closure of the uh, Immigration Investment Programme, he has never mentioned anything else. Uh, as I said here, since 2019, uh, the government was forced to launch uh, a large infrastructure sports grant. And as I said here, three or four years has passed by and there's still no sign of that coming. So as I said here, I, I do hope that the government has some... See, the, I think the sports capital grants, which is for local clubs and local communities, that, that, that's come, that, they are going to be released uh, hopefully before Easter. But the large ones, the ones that have the likes of the Kildare, the, the, Kildare, uh, the, the Meads, the Waterford, I will be honest, I have spoken to the likes of the, of the of, of, of people in Kildare and me and everything else, and we, we've passed on the information we have there at the moment. And I think they, they were starting to engage in, 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 in trying to get some, some of this money as well, right? But all of a sudden, uh, the programme has closed. Uh, I think there, there was some warning signs there just before Christmas, but uh, as I said, the minister does come out there on, on, on the 14th of February, and he says that it was closing on the 15th of February, but the only, the only good thing is, I think that at the moment, there's roughly about 1,500 applicants in there. Sure. The just, I, I so, just want to get in one, one final question, Peter, just uh, for the benefit of curious listeners. Uh, and once again, well done, by the way, in taking full advantage of this scheme because it's going to bring great great benefits rather to uh, the GAA in Louth. Uh, and the final question is, very briefly, when can we expect uh, the opening of this new stadium? Uh, at the moment, we, we, we're working very closely with Co-Park. Uh, this, this, this stadium is going to cost £20 million. We've roughly, roughly got £15 million there at the moment. We've spent about £1.2 million so far in the last maybe 12 months. I think people in the dark and surrounding areas, uh, for the last eight weeks, an awful lot of work is done. We've done a thing called a stimulation. So basically, there's no need for pylons. The pitch, the pitch is shovel-ready. And we, we, uh, we met Co-Park during the week, and we're meeting... Uh, Okay, and when is it going to open, uh, Peter? Michael, sorry, Ken, it's going to open in hopefully in September 2024. We'll have a first game in September 2024. Okay, well, the best of luck with that. And well done, as I say, on taking full advantage of that scheme, which unfortunately now has closed down, which is going to be bad news for other clubs around the region and indeed around the country who urgently require investment. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, you can contact us by WhatsApp on 086-1800-658. Regarding our discussion yesterday on car insurance, Margaret from Drogheda was in touch. 
She said she just had a car insurance quote from FBD. No change in circumstances, but her premium is up 15%. So this looks like being a contentious issue for uh, the months ahead. Now, yesterday, the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, uh, made a comment which many people agree with, but some people felt perhaps uh, was a little bit out of order. He said that snorting a line of cocaine or taking a pill at the weekend may have a direct link with murder, assault and criminality. And the point he was making was that if you purchase cocaine, you pay the supplier, the supplier passes the money on to the dealer. And if the dealer falls out with somebody along the way, it can get very vicious indeed. One man who's uh, very much in touch with what's happening on the drug scene is uh, P.O. Smith, former mayor of Drogheda and is actively involved with the Red Door project in the town, and he joins me in studio now. First of all, um, Peel, was was Simon Harris right when he said that if somebody takes cocaine, uh, they're basically, uh, if you like, having a direct link with murder, crime and assault? Uh, good morning, Ken. I think he made a good distinction between people who are in active addiction and people who, who weren't, and uh, directing his comments at that uh, cohort of the population. And in my opinion, I think he was completely right, because... We have to be as honest as we possibly can here in regards to uh, if I purchase cocaine or if I purchase weed or heroin or any other substance that's illegal and I go to a source that's a member of a, of a crime gang and I pay money over for that uh, product and then I consume that product on a regular basis. Well, if I don't make the link between what's going on in regards to the crime scene and the crime gang, uh, particularly the intimidation, the uh, murder in some cases, the which we've seen here in Drogheda over the last couple of years, uh, the intimidation of families, pensioners, uh, f- looking, going after pensioners to get them to pay the drug debts of their grandkids or, or, or their kids. I mean, that's, that's where we have to make that link too. And many people don't make that link and don't want to think about that and don't want to think that they are a part of the problem. I suppose the obvious question is, I mean, what can governments do, you know, whether it's in Ireland or elsewhere, to prevent or discourage people from getting involved in the drugs trade? I mean, are jail sentences, you know, a good deterrent or should more be done in terms of educating people at school about the dangers of drugs? Well, I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, you know, in many disadvantaged communities we have we don't have proper supports around uh, families who are struggling to, to kind of uh, keep their life going and keep things together uh, when you look at disadvantaged communities you, you know look at the job trajectory of, of, of people uh, they don't get into uh, professions as much as say other middle class people do so we need to put supports around that cohort of the population but also then in regards to the other larger section of the population in my view uh, which is the professional middle class population Uh, you know they appear to have all the advantages and yet they consume more illegal drugs and alcohol than uh, people from disadvantaged communities and that research has come from America and Europe and it's, it's fairly robust uh, so in terms of what, how do we change? Because this is established in people's he- in mo- people's minds now. So how do we change this type of thing? So it, we've got to start off uh, at the very beginning in the family home. We have to start off in primary school. We have to continue that through secondary school and through toward level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we have to start thinking about the values that we want to uh, live as society by and bring our children and our grandchildren up, because you know. There was a survey done back in 2022 asking people had they ever used drugs in this country. And over one million people said yes, they had. They had used a, r- a range of different types of illegal drugs. 
that's a, that's a significant portion of the population. And going back to what Simon Harris is saying and what you are saying, now we have to start asking ourselves, do I want my kids growing up in a situation like this? Do I want my grandkids growing up in a situation like this where it's actually okay to go down to a drug dealer and take an, uh, illegal drugs? Mm. So it's a, it's a societal problem. Yeah, I don't know if there's a connection, but uh, have you found from your uh, dealings with the Red Door Project that, for example, if youngsters are using uh, vaping products, that they're likely then to try something like cannabis and then they're likely to try something else? In other words, they start off on something very mild and then they try something else and before they know it, they're hooked on something else further on down the line. In other words, if there wasn't an initial start on something like vaping, they mightn't try cannabis and then they mightn't try cocaine. I'm not a believer in the gateway theory, you know, so I wouldn't subscribe to, to, to the gateway theory where somebody would say that if you take uh, cannabis, uh, that will lead you on to taking cocaine and other sure. drugs. Okay, so I wouldn't subscribe to that. One, one of the common features that across all uh, drug treatment programs that we find is that people who, people who become addicted to a drug... Uh, do so because they've suffered either significant stress and or some type of some form of abuse in their in their life, and uh, you know th- people who are using drugs at a very early age, uh, you, you'll always find that there is a trauma there somewhere along the line, and nobody chooses to become addicted. Sure, but but isn't there a thing called the sheep theory that if uh, a, a, a gang of youngsters, whether they be male or female, if one person tries it, somebody else will try it because they don't want to say no, because they don't want to feel isolated within that little gang. Isn't that a, a, another problem? It is, and, and, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of primary school, secondary school and parents. So, so we, we as parents have got to be really vigilant in regards to who our children are palling around with, particularly around fifth, sixth class, fourth, second year in, in, in secondary school. Because this is where an awful lot of problems starts. And if you've got somebody that, you know, is feeling isolated, but they want to become part of a group, and there may be one or two so-called leaders in that group who are using on a regular basis, they may feel that in order to become part of that group, as you're saying, that they have to try and take some weed or whatever it is, or take a street tablet or whatever it is. And then they find out that when they do that, their whole body, their mind changes, and then they get into a, a repetition of doing that, developing a habit and then developing an addiction. So you're right in that sense. But, you know, I think with, you know, good parental supervision, you won't eliminate the problem, but you will actually be on top of the problem early. And that's the key thing. If you can get on top of the problem early, uh, you have a great chance of preventing your child or grandchild then going into the, the really real suffering world of addiction. You're involved with the Red Door Project in Drogheda. It's one of numerous addiction services um, around the country. Are you satisfied the government is doing the right thing in its approach? Well, I think the government is doing a lot more than what was done by previous governments. Uh, now, partly that is because local politicians, TDs, senators, councillors, uh, have raised this issue over the last five to six years, particularly because of the drugs feud. Now, if we hadn't had a drugs feud in Drogheda, and we hadn't had the, the, the crime levels and the, the stress that was caused, I wonder... You know, would the same resources be starting to put into uh, the various services across the country? And you know, like there's an awful lot of drug services kind of just getting by. They're on the same uh, budget now as they were five or six years ago, and there is no kind of long-term planning in regards to how we address this problem. So you were saying, how do we address it from you know cradle to grave, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, sure. What we do have is, uh, as a criticism, I'd say, of all, all governments, is we have a very kind of reactive approach to policy. Uh, 
we don't have any long-term planning policy in regards to how we're going to address the issue. So if if feud flares up, garden numbers need to be put in, different services need to be put in, okay, we'll do that there. But we don't have another... Uh, plan in regards to the next five or ten years about kind of trying to prevent it because what we do know is it's becoming more prevalent for people to start using and taking drugs. It's very kind of normalised now. Mm. Uh, The next question of course is uh, punishments for those supplying drugs. Um, I I think there's one country, I don't know if it's New Zealand, I I, I just I can't remember which country it is but they have this uh, sort of, uh, it's like the three strikes and you're out type of process whereby if you're caught with drugs in the first instance, you might get five years in jail, but the penalties increase with each successive conviction. Is that the way to go? Or is an education programme basically telling youngsters, look, stay away from this because if you get involved with drugs, it'll either end in jail or it could even end in death? Yeah, I think I think there's a range of different approaches that need to be taken here. I think when you look at the people who are controlling the drug gangs and who are abusing young people, uh, I think a very hard penal approach should be taken for those people because they are very uh, focused uh, on on what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, they've reached an age now where they're irreformable. Not everyone, but a lot of them are. When you take other people who are getting involved in drugs and they get involved in crime, I think there is a a room, there's room for uh, probation, rehabilitation, education, and that is linked to the judicial judicial system. So, for example, if somebody gets a, a sentence of, say, three to five years, and they are linked in with probation, linked in with the judicial system, linked in with education and rehab, and there's a very tight group there, if that individual steps out of line in, in regards to any one of those uh, uh, engagements, well, then the sentence is implemented. So people know that there's a way out, and people know that if you don't take the way out, you're going to go to jail. Okay, I just want to drift away from drugs for the moment. There's been uh, an attack recently on a Garda car in Moneymore in Drogheda. There was also attacks on uh, Garda cars in Dundalk recently. What's going on? Well, unfortunately, this uh, is always going to happen. And I mean, in Dundalk, from my knowledge, that's not the first time that's happened. It's happened on a number of occasions over the last couple of years. Uh, what I would say is that the vast majority of people I know who live in Moneymore, and I've got family and friends who live in Moneymore, are decent, hard-working people, and they're trying to get by. So there's a very small minority who do this. And when it, when it happens, then it gets into the papers. Rightly so, it's highlighted, and that's what we need to do is to highlight it, because we've got a Garda car taken out of circulation. It's part of the community policing unit, and that's a key part in our... Uh, task of trying to you know reduce the use of drugs and also reduce the use of crime in communities so I totally condemn the attack on the cars but I'd also balance it out by saying it's only a very small minority of people who are doing this Sure and in areas like Moneymore and other housing estates around the Loudmead area I mean is it always about lack of facilities in the area where youngsters perhaps have nothing else to do they view the Gardaí as the enemy and if a Gardaí car comes into the area they then damage the car because the car represents the Gardaí who represent the state. Yeah, well, I suppose, look, it goes back to what you said earlier on in terms of influence, you know, and sometimes people believe or think if they want to be part of a cohort of a group that they must behave in a certain way. And uh, But, I mean, again, I keep saying it over and over again. I, I know the Moneymore community very well. I know other areas in Drogheda very well. And I know the people who live there. And, like, for example... One thing that isn't highlighted in a, a lot about money more and other places like that is on a number of occasions, the highest leaving said in the country came from people who lived in money more. Uh, you've got people who went on to uh, 
become nurses and doctors and have their own businesses and, and, and live in money more. And it's this type of stuff in regards to a small cohort of people who choose to try and send a message back to the guards. Uh, and, you know, it, it's pointless at the end of the day. And because the guards aren't going to change, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing. And, yeah. and that's they're not going to stop doing what they're doing because people are kind of saying they want them to do what they're doing. Okay. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed for coming in. That's uh, former Mayor of Drogheda, Labour Councillor P.O. Smith, who's uh, actively involved uh, with the Red Door project in the town. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you heard in the news, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is in Belfast today. He's talking to the political parties in the north, and the signs are that uh, a deal has been reached between the UK and the European Commission in relation to the outstanding issues over the controversial Northern Ireland Protocol. Maybe my next guest can fill us in as to what's going on. I'm joined by a regular voice on this programme, Karen Coleman, who's editor of EU News and covers the uh, European Parliament and European Commission for local radio stations here in the Republic. So, Karen, has a deal been done or is the, if you like, the outline of a deal uh, as is exactly what's being um, put to the parties in the north this morning by Rishi Sunak? Well, I certainly can't say whether a deal is certain um, because these have been very, very confidential talks. Um, And I think only those who are privy to those confidential talks can say to what extent has a deal really firmly been reached. Um, But what we do know, of course, is that there is the makings of a deal. There's lots of speculation going on that um, that deal will be announced by Downing Street on Tuesday. But in the meantime, Ken, as we know, of course, and you're referring to it there, Sunak is in Northern Ireland talking to various parties. He has to sell this deal to the DUP, who have been extremely against the protocol. They want it scrapped and they want any deal that is going to be made to meet their list of, of seven uh, requirements. And he also has to sell it to the very conservative, Eurosceptic, Uh, pro-Brexit European Research Group. Um, And it's hard to see how a deal will satisfy them and also satisfy the European Union and what they have been demanding as well. Um, And one would have to think that, you know, certain parties will not be satisfied with this if this deal goes ahead. And then the question is, to what extent will Rishi Sunak decide that he is going to push the deal through even if hardliners within his own uh, Tory party and then the DUP are against it. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I have to say I'm, I would be amazed if they managed to push this deal through and it goes ahead and all parties are happy with it. I, I don't think that's going to be the outcome. Certain people will not be happy with the outcome of this. It's hard to see how he can get something across the line that will, will satisfy all those, that big range of players who have been either for it or against it, including the European Union. The proposal, as I understand it, that's uh, on offer relates to the movement of goods from GB into NI, and they're talking about what are called green lanes and red lanes. So, in other words, if somebody was driving a truckload of furniture from uh, Birmingham to Belfast, the truck gets on the uh, the boat at Liverpool, it makes its way to Belfast, and if the furniture, for example, is destined for Northern Ireland, it goes through the green lane and therefore won't be stopped and checked but if it's going 
en route to Donegal or Sligo into the Republic, which is in the EU. It goes then through a red lane. Um, is that? Are you hearing anything that that proposal is workable? Well, what I'm certainly hearing is that that is what is you know, very strongly uh, likely to be proposed. The European Commission has been talking for some time now about this green lane and this red lane. Um, I mean, the Commission would be very against uh, goods coming into Northern Ireland from Britain and then just freely flowing into the rest or into the EU through the Republic of Ireland without checks because, of course, what they say is you know, Northern Ireland has this, will have this dual situation where it's still part of the single market, but that doesn't mean goods can flow freely from Britain into the European Union without checks. Now, the question is, will the DUP be satisfied with this uh, in their list of, of seven requirements? I mean, they do not want a border down the Irish Sea, this, this kind of sort of slightly mythical border down the Irish Sea, but the point being checks in ports on goods coming from Britain into the region. Will they accept that because Northern Ireland remains within the single market for trade, that goods can will have to have some checks, that it's unreasonable to expect a situation where goods could come freely from Britain, which is now outside the EU, outside the single market, and yet perhaps come in without any checks on them through, um, a, you know, no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And, and I mean, this is a key issue. Will they accept the fact that these lanes will have to be um, there, those checks and goods will have to take place. I doubt the EU is not going to roll back in this, I would say, Ken. I, I, I find it hard to believe that the EU would accept that goods can just go freely from Britain into Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, without any checks. I don't think that's going to happen. Sure. I, I, I spent a lot of time up north uh, last year reporting for another uh, news outlet. And from speaking to the likes of Dr Brian Feeney, who's a columnist with the Irish News, the impression he gave me was that the position that the DUP is taking in real terms, it's nothing to do with the protocol. It's just that the hardliners in the DUP can't accept that there were three major changes last year that they just can't accept. That, number one, Sinn Féin got the most seats in the Assembly. The Irish Language Act was introduced, which means there's going to be more uh, dual language signs in the north in the in the years ahead. And, and the third thing was that the census showed that Catholics are now a majority and some of them just can't accept that nationalists, uh, to use a term, are now on top. Are you hearing anything like that uh, anytime you talk to people in Brussels or is it really all about trade moving between GB and NI? Well I suppose I mean people recognise there are very considerable historical contexts in terms of Northern Ireland and the political situation and the Good Friday Agreement. I don't know that everybody in, in political circles in Brussels whether the European Parliament or, you know, the European Council or all the other, uh, the 27 member states, including, of course, Ireland, and um, that all of them would be fully aware of, of, of the different elements and um, the history of, of the parties in Northern Ireland. But I think what people definitely talk about, and you hear it regularly, is the need to ensure the Good Friday Agreement is not shattered, that peace, very hard-earned peace, 
um, is not interfered with for Northern Ireland. I mean, we have the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up. So, I mean, they would certainly be aware of that. I'm not sure that they would be, you know, very familiar with the individual um, desires or political uh, requirements of the, the likes of the DUP. We, we in Ireland would be more familiar with that. But I think that analysis is a fair analysis. I mean, the DUP... The, uh, their alignment with Britain, being part of Britain, not being part of the Republic of Ireland, is so important to them. Um, it, it matters much more um, than perhaps a lot of people realise. It's, it's hugely important that they see themselves as part of Britain. Um, and, and this idea that there could be some kind of border or checks or something that interferes with that free flow in every sense of the word between Britain and Northern Ireland is 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 deeply I suppose hurtful or agonizing for them. Yeah well change change is happening but can I put the question to you do you get any sense from the people you talk to in Brussels and Strasbourg that uh, people in the EU, EU commission they're fed up to their ears with the behavior of the DUP? Well, I mean, there is no doubt the European Commission would be delighted if uh, a deal was done, if Maris Shevkovich, the main EU commissioner dealing with the protocol, managed to get a deal struck and they could move on. I mean, we there are so many other issues uh, that need, that are requiring the uh, attentions of the European Commission. Like I was at a big conference um, where a lot of commission people were present in Brussels over uh, the last few days. And, you know, the talk about the geopolitical situation where they, they use a lot, but the Ukraine situation, problems in so many other parts of the world that they're dealing with, changes with China, how to deal with China in the future. There's still a massive fallout in terms of COVID and its impact on countries all around the world that the Commission might have embassies in and are dealing with. So there are very significant issues um, that the EU and the European Commission and then the European Council have to deal with. But this has been going on and on and on for so many years. I mean, it took several years for the Brexit deal to actually be finally agreed. And then there have been the problems with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I would think, you know, I mean, if a deal was struck, even if it left some people deeply unhappy and some parties, I think the, you know, there would be a sense of relief that now let's move on, let's just move on. The protocol is in place, a deal has been struck. Some people won't be happy, but that's life. We just have to get on now with the other significant issues that are out there. Okay, well, we'll have to wait and see what happens uh, in the coming days, whether there will be uh, an acceptance of the proposed deal or not. We're going to leave it there. That's uh, Karen Coleman, editor of EU News Radio, and Karen covers the European Parliament and the European Commission for local radio stations around the country. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Stella was in touch and she thinks that I was a little harsh in my treatment of the community activist at the start of the show. I was dismissive and combative in my line of questioning. Is it that difficult for Ken Murray to believe that there are organisations and groups who want to send a message to the immigrants coming into the country that they are welcome here and that there are Irish people who are willing to challenge the government on their behalf to ensure they get the help and service 
services they need. Well, I didn't say immigrants are not welcome, but my job is to simply ask the questions on behalf of the pu- the public and be objective. In other words, I've got to challenge the interviewee uh, on the various points to see whether their argument is a convincing one. But thanks for the comments, Stella. I mean, we welcome them all the time. Tommy was in touch regarding the cost of living. He says that no matter what the government do with these measures, they will never be able to please everyone. There will always be somebody who feels left out. Now, getting back to the cost of living crisis, and the newspapers are reporting this morning that the special 9% VAT rate for hospitality is set to be scrapped. And this is a move that's going to cause some anger amongst publicans, hoteliers and the uh, the various people who operate in the hospitality sector. Denise Campbell is president of the Irish Hotels Federation and she joins me on the line right now. So is it fair to say, Denise, that uh, the days of 9% VAT are coming to an end? Good morning, Ken. Um Look, we haven't been told that really and, you know, we're strongly advocating for the 9% VAT rate to remain, you know, one in every 11 jobs are tourism and hospitality related. And in in the Meath and and Louth area, there's 10,000 jobs where where people were employed in in tourism and hospitality. So really, now is not the time to to increase the VAT rate to 13.5%. We've had it at 9% for the last 10 out of 12 years and we've generated millions to the economy and in tax receipts so really Ken now is not the time to be adding further cost to businesses or to the consumer so really we are advocating for it to remain at 9% and we're doing all we can and we're talking to government well, I know, I know uh, various people across the hospitality sector have been lobbying the government yeah. even, even prior to Christmas. What are mm-hmm. government people saying to you We've had very positive engagement with government. We've had positive responses from backbenchers, from um, local politicians, you know, uh, hotels and, and guest houses throughout the country are engaged with their local representatives. And they're reinforcing the, the, the fact that really now is not the time. What, like we, we can't understand, Ken, to be honest with you, why the government would see, we, we haven't got the rationale to see why the government would think the right thing to do at this current climate is for Ireland, which is an island destination, to have the third highest VAT rate in all of Europe. It just does not make sense. It's already very different. We're an island economy. It's hard for people to get to us. And we're putting further costs on our domestic visitors and also our international visitors. And it's a real concern for us. Are you getting any feedback from uh, people who intend to book a holiday here or indeed, you know, come here for conferences and so on, that they're concerned about the, uh, if you like, not only the rate, but the cost of accommodation, the cost of food? I I was reading yesterday in one of the papers that I think one pub in Dublin is now selling a pint at 9.99 for a pint of Guinness. It's ridiculous. Uh, And that there's a sense growing that uh, Ireland may become unattractive unless this issue is properly dealt with. Are you getting any sense of that? Like so, so if the VAT were to go to thirteen and a half percent, it's it's four hundred million. So, so really, like businesses won't be in a position to absorb that. So it, it's putting it's a consumer tax at the end of the day, and it's putting the, the, a further costs onto the consumer, which isn't the right time to do it at all, Ken. So we are strongly advocating for it to stay at nine percent. What would you say to people who say that? 
you know, after COVID, you people, you know, you being the hospitality sector, you, you lobbied for a reduction in VAT and the consumer thought that they would get cheaper meals in restaurants, they would get cheaper alcohol in the pubs, they would get cheaper rates in the hotels. And in real terms, it hasn't happened. The reduction in VAT does not appear to have been passed on to the consumer. What would you say to the consumer who thinks that way? Look, 9% is the correct right, correct VAT rate for the country. You know, if, if it is to go, then, you know, we're pitching ourselves out. We've lost our competitive advantage. So, and look, I understand there was fr- frustration with when some people experienced, you know, you know, higher rates in Dublin at key event dates. But look, it wasn't representative or it isn't representative of our industry. And and really, on any given night, there's 63,000 hotel bedrooms, hotel and guest house bedrooms throughout Ireland. And really, you know, the, a small portion of rooms that made the headlines really isn't any justification for the VAT rate to go from 9 to 13 and a half. Sure, but, but when, for example, Garth Brooks played in Dublin for that series of concerts uh, last year, uh, there were reports in the papers of hotels uh, jacking up the prices, in some cases doubling the prices for overnight stays. Do you accept that that type of activity doesn't do your case any good? Look, it has been proven, Ken, that you know our average rates are within the same as our as our European competitors. So if you look in the last three years, say Dublin, for example, our average rate has increased by 18%. So on any, you know, it's difficult just to highlight, the, you know, it, it, it makes it difficult for our industry when it's just one one night or two nights are, are highlighted in the media. Like in the rounds, there's very good value to be had in Ireland and in Dublin. And really, that's why we've had such a, a successful tour. Well, you know, nine, Ireland is a nine, very successful yeah, sure. destination. Yeah, but hang on now. Nine ninety nine for a pint of Guinness isn't exactly what you call good value. And look, we're going to see examples of that. And really, that you know, those examples shouldn't be the reason why we should lose our competitive advantage against our European countries. No, but it sends out the wrong signal to tourists, though, doesn't it? it it's not. It, it it doesn't give a great uh, advertisement. But I think on that I, on that uh, article in particular, it was in the city centre. It was after midnight. Like those examples, really, they're no justification to mean that we should be increasing consumer taxes further, Ken. And 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 really, it 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 is going to come down to it that it'll be everything from a cup of coffee to a meal in a hotel to wedding, you know, wedding couples will be affected by this. So really, it, it is a consumer tax at the end of the day, and we are urging government not to increase it from that 9%, because okay, just, it just pivots us to that top rate of tax, which really, we lose our competitive advantage. Yeah, just one final question, uh, Denise. I mean, assuming the VAT rate jumps from 9% to 13.5, what is this going to mean to people who go out for a meal, people who mm-hmm. want to stay in a hotel down the country for the weekend, mm-hmm. people who want to go to the pub for a pint, whatever. What's it going to mean to the average Joe and Mary? And, and that's the question that we're asking government because really it, 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 it costs the government £400 million and in further taxes and really we it's a consumer tax we tax we, we collect tax for the government so really in essence it, it is more than likely some businesses may be able to absorb it Ken and other businesses may not be able to. I can't comment on that but all I know is that 
it really is a consumer tax and now is not the time that we should be adding further inflationary pressure to consumers or to businesses. Okay. So we are advocating for it to stay at 9%. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Denise Campbell, President of the Irish Hotels Federation. Barry was in touch to say it was a pleasant surprise to hear the media reports this morning that it's looking likely that a deal could be reached on the Northern Ireland Protocol. He wonders how long this positive attitude will continue before the DUP pulled the usual stunt of throwing a spanner in the works. And that just about wraps it up for today. I want to thank Chris Murray on sound, Maggie Maguire produced. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again soon. Sinead Brazel is next. And until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.